Support for Outlaws and Gunslingers comes today from Manscaped, the one and only Manscaped. Manscaped has the right tools to get the job done quickly, safely, and hygienically. Is it hygienically? Hygienically. Either or. Father's Day is just around the corner. Yes, it is. And you probably need a gift for a hairy dad. Is your dad hairy? Hmm. Hmm. Make your dad proud this year and get him get him and yourself the Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0, the newest one, and Ultra Smooth Package. You know what they say, like father, like son. The brand new, yes, brand new Lawnmower 4.0 and Ultra Smooth Package is perfect for you and the dad in your life to complete your grooming game. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code OUTLAWS. At manscaped.com. What was that? Code Outlaws. 20% off, free shipping. Manscaped.com. Manscaped is the only men's brand dedicated to below the waist grooming. And the brand new shaving tools just dropped right in time. They sure did because the lawnmower 4.0 trimmer is now available in the USA and Canada. So, all you little Canadians up north, you can take advantage of this deal as well. What makes this waterproof trimmer different from all other trimmers, you may ask? Well, the 7,000 RPM trimmer features skin safe, which is trademarked. So uh, no other companies out there, don't nope. you try taking it. Nope. It's got the skin safe technology to keep your balls in check and has helped reduce manscaping accidents around the world. Also has a new multi-function on-off switch, which can engage a travel lock created for jet setters. So you're taking it on the plane. You don't want it to uh, go off if you bump it off accidentally. Guess what? You put it in the travel lock. You know, you're throwing your bags in the overhead, and it's not going to go off and waste your battery on you. Lawnmower 4.0 gives you the ability to turn the 4,000K LED spotlight on and off when needed for a more precise shave. I mean, what other shaver do you mm. know that has a freaking flashlight to shave your ball right. with? Right. Plus, additional guard lengths with sizes 1 to 4 to let you trim to your liking. Trim to and your liking. as usual, I recommend a 1, and that's it. Nobody, nobody. I, I don't know about you other guys out there, but I don't think you want us... Uh, <laughs> A four guard. That's literally uh maybe they like the four on top and that's some long ass ball hair. It's not, but you will love investing in the best new technology and advancements. And you will be blown away by the performance just like I was. The craftsmanship and details on the four point are next level. They really are next level. I love mm. the little stand that it comes in and, yeah, and nice. charging. It's just nice and keep sleek. it on. Just All right, nice. put it on the stand, pick it up, and you're good to Not go. I mentioned that it's waterproof. So. Yeah, right in the shower. If you want to get the complete package, though, the Manscaped Ultra Smooth Package is a three-step kit to help keep your family jewels protected. Step one is the crop exfoliator, infused with ingredients that can soothe, clear, and keep the skin in. Skin on and around your groin, feeling refreshed, reducing the risk of ingrown hairs by your delicates. Nobody wants the ingrown hairs down right. by your delicates. Step two, crop gel. See where you're shaving with our unique clear shaving gel just for the groin. Oh, wow. You can, yeah. yeah. Now, that is that is uh, industry. Um, it's nice. You can target. Industry. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Technology advance right. right there where you clear shaving cream so you know where you're shaving. That's good stuff. Mm. And step three, it's time to shave now, baby. The crop shaver, which is also trademarked, was designed for shaving the groin area with confidence. Three precision blades include extra wide lubricating strips and a pivoting head for the ultimate groin grooming experience. Mm. Now, this is the uh, the razor. Now. Right, the hand razor. Mm-hmm. Nice. All three of these vegan, cruelty-free, and sulfate-free products are included so you know your manhood made with avocados is in good hands. Well, stop imagining your dad has it covered because he probably doesn't. Mm. Well, you can get 20% off and free shipping with the code OUTLAWS at manscaped.com. 
That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code OUTLAWS. It's dad bod season. Time to get smooth. 20% off. Outlaws. Outlaws. Manscaped.com. You're listening to Outlaws and Gunslingers, the only podcast covering all of America's infamous criminals. From the Wild West to the Mafia, all the way up to the ruthless street gangs of today. Brought to you exclusively by the Creative Control Network. Here are your hosts, the Mouthy Michiganders, Bang and Dang. Welcome back to Outlaws and Gunslingers. We are your host, the Mouthy Michiganders. This is Bang Dang's over there. And we are moving on into our, I think, fourth? Moving on. Fourth? One, two, three. Nope, fifth, if you count Bugsy Siegel way back when we uh, first started this podcast. But fifth, technically, prohibition episode you saw bugsy siegel lucky luciano al capone george remus and now another guy that probably isn't in the spotlight all the time that uh it's not a sexy name in the prohibition um era like al capone and lucky Lucky luciano they say sexy it's sexy you know like a sexy no that's gonna attract people no this is when you see william mccoy yeah i just stooge it off now when you see william mccoy people aren't gonna be like oh no i gotta hear that it's not a sexy name where it's going to attract people, but once you hear his story, uh, you'll find out why he's considered one of the greatest rum runners slash bootleggers of uh, the early Prohibition era and uh, why he was probably the most respected figure in Prohibition as far as um, not ripping anybody off, the alcohol that he sold, and the way he did things was uh, he had tons of respect from everybody that he sold to and all that good stuff. He was a he was a good old boy from uh, from Florida. So, Willie McCoy. He just finally figured, hey man, it's bullshit that the government did this. I'm gonna supply this to the people, but not rip them off and be a dick about it. Well, as you guys can see, Dang doesn't know his story. <laughs> huh? He'll be. He'll be. Dang doesn't know his story, so he'll be learning with the rest of you guys today on uh, William. You just said that. William Bill McCoy. No, I didn't say that he was mad at the government. I, said, I didn't say he was mad at the I government. I said he was respected at the way that he did business and all that good stuff because unlike many operations that illegally produced and smuggled alcohol for consumption during Prohibition, McCoy sold his merchandise unadulterated, uncut, and clean. So the liquor he got, he didn't touch it. Not watered down. He got it and shipped it off. Not watered down. And he never paid a cent to organized crime, politicians, or law enforcement for protection. Dude did it all legit by himself, didn't look for others for help, and he made a reputation of being a good guy to uh, do business with. That's why he was so successful in the few short years that he actually uh, did it. This guy was born in Syracuse, New York in 1877 to a Scottish-American family. Scottish for a change, huh? You don't hear about uh, Scots too much. No. He had a brother named Ben who was five years older and a sister, Violet, five years younger. The hell of an increment, huh? Every five years, we're going to have a kid, baby. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, his father, who was also named Willie McCoy, was a brick mason who had been in the Union Navy during the American Civil War, serving on the blockade of Southern Coast. Bill McCoy attended the Pennsylvania Nautical School on board the USS Saratoga in Philly, and he graduated in 1895, first in his class. So this dude's a smart little motherfucker when it comes to uh, boats, which you're going to see boating is his uh, preferred method of choice coming Later in this episode, we then sir he then served as a mate and a quartermaster on a few vessels, including the P and O steamer Olivet, which is uh, in Havana, Cuba, 
when the USS Maine exploded in 1898 and started uh, what was one of the key points of starting the Spanish-American War, I believe. Mm, that's rough stuff. Yes, sir. So he's had a... Uh, He's had some boat service knowledge before he even. This is not even. This is way before the prohibition. He knows the waters. Sure does. Around 1900, the McCoys moved to a small Florida town named Holly Hill, just north of Daytona Beach. Holly Hill. Bill and his brother Ben operated a motorboat service and a boatyard. <laughs> yeah. Motorboat son of a bitch, you old sailor, you. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And a boatyard in Holly Hill, and Jacksonville. Mm-hmm. By 1918, 18 years later, having constructed vessels for millionaire customers that included Andrew Carnegie, Carnegie. Mm, and Vanderbilt, mm. among others. Bill earned a reputation for being a skilled yacht builder. Nice. So- selling, everybody, everybody wanted McCoy's yachts. Selling million-dollar yachts, man. What you got out there? I got a McCoy. That's I got a nice. McCoy. Well, we'll see where that, uh, what do we got? I got the real McCoy. I got the real McCoy. Well, during Prohibition, their excursion and freight business could not compete with the new highways and buses being built up and down the coast and across Florida. And then one day they were approached by a rum runner. He's like, I'll give you guys $100 to sail this liquor shipment through Rum Row, which is like a blockade kind of like right outside on international waters to obviously Rum Row. They call it for a reason. Right. Well, they declined the offer initially, but old Bill, he couldn't stop thinking about the money that could be made. He's like, damn, our business is failing. And this guy just offered me $100 to sail like I would normally sail. Jeez. Right. Well, soon he pulled together the last of his savings and began his bootlegging career by buying a 90-foot schooner called the Henry L. Marshall. His first trip was to a smuggler's port in Nassau, Nassau, uh, which is a pirate's safe haven back in the day-day. In like the day-day. The 1500s. In the Bahamas, where he stocked up on 1,500 cases of Canadian whiskey. Ooh-wee. He arrived in U.S. waters three days later and sold the whiskey for $15,000. Mm. With the huge payday and the fact that the money was tax-free, Bill couldn't get enough, and bootlegging became his new career. He's like, I just made $15,000 by doing what I doing love. what I love, sailing the sea. Mm. All I had to do, I didn't even load it myself. I just sat there while everybody loaded it. Right. They put it on my boat. I came back, sold it. I didn't even unload it. No, did nothing. <laughs> and I collected fifteen grand for it. Oh man, mm. what a career! Probably a little less than after paying his uh, boatman and well, still what they call him. Still, it's in boatmates. Nineteen, mates. eighteen, fifteen thousand dollars—a lot of money. Well, you probably kept at least ten of it. Uh, business was going so good that Bill hired a new skipper for the Marshall and purchased a new one hundred thirty-foot schooner. <laughs> That's how business uh, was going. Called Arethusa. Arethusa. I think it's Arthusa. Arthusa. Yeah, Arthusa. And that became his, it's A-R-E-T-H-U-S-A, guys. <laughs> that was his boat. And this became his new flagship, as well as serving as a floating liquor store. He's like, I'm getting rid of this little puny-ass 90-foot boat. Right. And we're going to upgrade 40 feet to, uh, oh, the thing had everything. My captain's quarters is now 10% bigger. Mm. Mm. And make this bitch a floating liquor store. And, uh, yeah. Boats pull up. <laughs> And think, they, he, <laughs> think he had a bell when people walked on on deck, it was like, ding, like the liquor stores, <laughs> <laughs> or when they got close enough to the boat, because another <laughs> boat was coming. Right, taking advantage of international water laws, Bill would park his fully stocked schooners just outside of American waters and have buyers come to him from the mainland. Of course, I mean he's doing nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. Out of caution, well, he is just not right in not American yeah, waters. Right. Yeah. Out of caution, he only allowed two buyers on board at a time and made sure that nobody would try to hijack him by placing a swivel machine gun on deck. Damn. Nice. Bill's success and reputation. Can you imagine rolling mm. up to that ship 
or that schooner boat, whatever, and there's a fucking swivel machine gun pointed right at your ass, you guys better not. That's yeah. at least firing, what, five-inch shells? Oh, my. At the, it, I mean, they're huge. Right. Bill's success and reputation grew, which uh, attracted many, many loyal customers. Mm-hmm. They're like, this guy's legit, man. I mean, right. I feel more comfortable coming to him than going to old Lucky Luciano. <laughs> Uh, who uh, Bill often invited them to stay aboard for evening cocktails. They're like, why don't you get chill out? on board have I a mean, drink or two. You're in the middle of the freaking ocean. <laughs> it's like the Simpsons episode where they're on the uh, yacht and they're yeah. holding the monkey knife fighting jam. <laughs> it's all going on on these boats. <laughs> well, then uh, Bill made a number of successful trips aboard the Arthusa, and along with the Henry L. Marshall and up to five other vessels, he became a household name through his smuggling activities. Well, he mostly hauled rye, Irish, and Canadian whiskey, as well as other fine liquors and wines. He's like, I'll do what you want. Mm-hmm. He's like the guy that comes up to you on the street with a trench coat on. And he's like, I got watches. Watches, I got whatever. everything, necklaces, bracelets, earrings. What you need. He is credited with inventing the burlock, which is also known as hams, a package holding six bottles jacketed in straw, three on the bottom, then two, then one, so like a pyramid, which was sewed tightly in a burlap. It was compact and easy to handle. These were generally known in the Coast Guard as sacks. How many sacks he had? Well, he got like 15 sacks. Right. Well, the burlocks were easily stacked and uh, a lot easier to move between vessels than the traditional wooden cases, obviously. Right. Some hams were stuffed with salt so that if they were about to be caught, they could throw them overboard, and with the weight of the salt, they would sink, hiding all the evidence. But the salt would then dissolve a little bit later, and these guys would just come back. And collect the uh, bottles that floated to the surface afterwards. Huh. And come back and sell them. Genius. Genius. And now we got a picture of what they look like. I mean, that's a hell of a stacking system. Right. This dude's a genius. Right. Little triangles like that. There's five in a sack. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. August 2nd, 1921, just off the coast of New Jersey. His vessel, Marshall, and its captain and the crew were boarded and seized by the United States Coast Guard's flagship, Seneca. Oh, this Seneca. They're going to be a problem. They seized at least 1,400 cases of whiskey as well. Mm. Even though they were clearly in international waters, the Coast Guard enacted the Maritime Act of 1790 to commit the seizure. They suspected there's a crime. You know they were going back. All these Coast Guards, what are we going to do about these uh, water fucking vessel captains smuggling in liquor from other places? There's got to be a law that uh, right. that says we can go more than the three miles. Well, the Maritime Act of 1790 is uh, that if vessels that were in the process of committing crimes could be approached 12 miles out from shore, which was about on one hour's sailing time. And in this current time, in 1921, the technical inter- international water was only three miles off the shore. Mm-hmm. So they could go another, what, nine miles? Mm-hmm. And they, uh, yeah, somebody was looking way back in the books yeah, for that. because funky. Well, it was in 1790, and the way that it was set up was that they could go 12 miles out of international water or into international water, which was the... Well, 12 miles from shore. Was, it, right, which was about three miles. I mean, which was about... Um, or no, they could do 12 miles here, but the, the one that's in place right now that we're working off of in 1921 was based off of when cannons were fired from the ships. And the farthest that a, that a cannon could fire was the limit, which was three miles at the time. That's why that's why the current law is three miles, because a cannon can only fire three miles. Mm. So then, then, then that's what uh, Bill is working off of. And then these guys went back in the, in the, the annals of time and was like, 
Wait a minute. Mm, look this at says this. we can uh, go back 12 miles. Ooh, uh, I think we should uh, think, do this. I think they're committing crimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even if they're not, we could. Right. What's right. stopping them from saying uh, approaching and boarding a ship and just claiming that they're committing crimes, anyways? All right. All right. Mm. Nothing. That's nuts. This new legal precedent was a major blow to rum runners, obviously, and smugglers on Rum Row. Although at first they didn't know who owned the marshal, they soon found out it was Bill, and he became the most wanted man in Prohibition at the time. To prevent any more surprises with the Coast Guard, he renamed Arthusa to Tomoka and registered it under, the Brit- under British sovereignty as well as French sovereignty as the Marie Celeste. So under mm. French, it was Marie Celeste, and under British, it was the Tomoka. All right. This offered him some protection as the Coast Guard were less likely to board international vessels in international waters. Right. So, uh, I mean, yeah, at first maybe, but then when they find out who, who who's doing this shit, they ain't going to have no problem. Well, we'll see. 1922, Bill moved his operations from Nassau to a small French fishing village south of Newfoundland in Canada, and he called it? St. Pierre. Well, he didn't, well, he call, didn't call it. It, <laughs> it was already called it. Right. He's like, you know what? I know there's like hundreds of people living here already. <laughs> you guys already have a <laughs> name, gonna, but... We're going to rename this. St. Pierre sounds pretty <laughs> good. With its close proximity to the United States' advantage of not being under U.S. law and total cooperation from the poor locos, it became one of the most successful smuggling ports in history. Mm. That's St. Pierre, Newfoundland, Canada. Just south of Newfoundland. Bill's arrival in the French... And the French town transformed St. Pierre from a sleepy fishing town to a booming economy. Oh, it sure did, because one year. Economy. Just one year after Bill came to town, over a thousand vessels were recorded coming and going from the island. Fishermen from the town were rehired as longshoremen or crew on the vessels, and pretty much every barn, garage, and cellar was turned into liquor warehouses. It was like a safe haven for fucking bootleggers and rum runners, man. At the end of 1923, 6 million bottles of alcohol would pass through, which was equivalent to 1,500 bottles per resident. So imagine us just going down in our cellar and having 1,500 bottles of, uh, of liquor. I mean, I mean that was, if, uh, if anybody has a decent wine cellar, I mean, not about 1,500, but there's hundreds. Hundreds of bottles. Maybe 100. That's a huge-ass wine cellar. Right. Well, by 1931, an estimated 1.8 million gallons were exported in that year alone. Al Capone, Mr. Al Capone, is also said to have a warehouse there and would visit it frequently. Well, with the end of Prohibition, the town would basically die overnight, just like uh, you've seen countless times in um, the Wild West. Once the mines are gone, everybody else is gone. Yep. This time in the island's history became known as La Temps de la Fraude, which means the time of the scam. A visiting Canadian journalist wrote of the town. The odor grew so strong that at times the fog that rode up on St. Pierre's Steeply inclined streets with the nightly tide would carry a distinct Scotch flavor. So imagine walking, <laughs> you're walking through the streets, inhaling fog, and you're getting drunk at the fucking same time. That'd be great. That'd be yeah. Great. That'd be a great town to, town to live in. Right. Twenty third November, nineteen twenty three. Bill's luck would come to an end. Oh no, Billy! Six and a half miles off the coast of Seabright, New Jersey, the United States Coast Guard Seneca boarded that and damn seized. Seneca. They seized the Tamaka Tamoka. Uh, with Bill aboard. Damn. Bill initially tried to outrun the Seneca, but surrendered after a warning shot from the Coast Guard. McCord described the chase that led to his capture. When the Tomoka was Tamaka. Is it Tamaka? Oh, they also say this guy sounded a little bit like Foghorn Leghorn, so. I'll say when, when the Tomoka. <laughs> right. When the Tomoka was boarded. I mean, that's up your alley. You always want to do. Uh, 
Uh, like uh, Mikey said. <laughs> mm. What did he say? Remember, remember he was like, why did you always do go into a uh, um, southern accent? <laughs> I said, that, that's dang. That's dang. <laughs> right. <laughs> now this is your opportunity to. Right. Uh, uh, McCoy described the chase that led to his capture, and it goes like this. When the Tomoka was boarded under... <laughs> <laughs> When the Tomoka was boarded under cover of the Seneca's guns, I immediately set sail and ran away with the boarding party. One lieutenant, one boson, and one thirteen seamen. So there was <laughs> one thirteen of them. Uh, All wrapped in. Wrapped For you guys who don't know what a boson is, he's basically the uh, right hand man of the boat. And he also had thirteen seamen on the board. Uh, and only upon their pleas did I heave to and put them back on the Seneca. The damned radio was too severe and handicapped for me. I surrendered after Seneca had fired four-inch shells at me. I would, too. Mm. Four-inch shells coming at you. Well, the New York Times article that reported on the capture and arraignment of McCoy described the incident as follows. It says the report to Collector Eltine showed that the Tomoka was first boarded by Lieutenant Commander Perkins of the Coast Guard Cutter Seneca, who ordered the crew keep silent. The bow of the schooner was then turned out to sea, and when the commander of the cutter observed the movement, he sent a shot across the bow of the Tomoka. She returned the fire with a machine gun set up on her forward deck. Wait, mm. he didn't mention him uh, returning fire with the machine gun. Yeah, I did that early uh, no. right. Well, it is the New York Times, so uh, we see how they are. But we see a nice little picture of the Seneca. what they say it was? 130 foot? 130 foot his boat was. Built in 1908 and still running down rum, rum runners. It was 204 feet long. So, yeah, a little, hmm. way bigger than the, uh, All right. than his ship. So, but yeah, he never mentioned that, uh, they, he shot at him back. Well, that doesn't make sense, though. Why would they were fired a warning shot and he clearly surrendered? Right. If he shot back at him, they would definitely uh, unload their five inch or four inch yeah, shells more were... than just one surrender, or, uh, warning shot. Yeah. So, uh, mm-hmm. New York Times. Fake news again. Of course. Due to his many connections and money, Bill managed to stay out on bail for two years thanks to a judge who allowed him to be monitored in a hotel and could come and go as he pleased. When asked what defense he planned to make at the hearing before the trial, McCoy introduced details of operations by replying, I have no tale of woe to tell you. I was outside the three-mile limit selling whiskey, good whiskey, to anyone and Everyone <laughs> who wanted to buy. Well, see, I mean, he is. He's got a point. Right. He's outside the legal limit, uh-huh. and he's selling to these guys. It's not his responsibility what these guys do, or where they take it. If they take it back into U.S. lands, it's not his right. responsibility. He sold it right. in international waters where it was legal. Mm-hmm. So if they take it out of there, then it's not his fault. And he was right. He was selling good whiskey, uncut, unadulterated. Right. And you're not telling me that none of his whiskey. Uh, didn't end up in the hands of some of the politicians that were. Of course, it we did. already know during Prohibition that the president had uh, alcohol shipped to the White House. We already know countless politicians that were drinking and going to speakeasies and shit like this. You're telling me it's true. That's the thing about government, man. Well. Do as uh, I say, not as I do. Mm. Rules for thee, not for me. Mm. Well, Bill would end up serving nine months in a New Jersey jail when he pleaded guilty to all counts to avoid a long, drawn-out trial. He's like, I don't have the energy or the money for this. Right. 
The legal fees ate away at his savings, and after he got out, he decided that since he was away for so long, he wasn't going to compete with the crime syndicates that had now taken over bootlegging. Right. He's like, I have no interest in... Uh, that'll give you some hot water, too, when you're trying to go to the crime syndicates. They'll, they'll put a bullet in your brain. Mm-hmm. It ain't worth it, Billy. Well, nope. he said it ain't worth it. He ended up moving back to Florida and invested in real estate and a boat-building business with his brother Ben. All right, brother Ben, you want to build some boats? Ben, you want to build some more boats for millionaires? Like, right. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I thought you never asked. Duh. 30th of December, 1948. While aboard his private yacht, the Blue Lagoon, Bill died of a heart attack at the age of 78. Hmm. Since Bill never cut the alcohol he sold and had a good reputation as being honest, he and his product became known as, you guessed it, the real McCoy. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is where the term came from. This is the 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 term real McCoy. It's the real McCoy right here, it's buddy. It's the real McCoy. Author Frederick F. Vandewater would write a book called The Real McCoy, mm. which was about, you guessed it, <laughs> Al Capone. Like, <laughs> <laughs> <My> what? <word. laughs> It was about Bill. In 1931, he wrote this book. Uh, in the HBO series Boardwalk Empire, Bill McCoy is played by Pierce Bunning. When asked how Bill would be remembered, his brother Ben simply replied, when the country went dry, he irrigated it. Quote, end quote. Quote, end quote. That, that's a pretty great way to end this episode on Bill McCoy, which pretty short one, to be honest. It's probably going to be about 25 minutes. And, I mean... What are you gonna do? His story's his story's short, but he only he was only in the game for like four years. Yeah, but do? in that four years, he inspired a character to be on Boardwalk Empire, which was a pretty popular show, and clearly inspired a whole uh, saying, the real McCoy, that lived on for decades and decades after his death. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. at one time, we already established that he was one of the or the most wanted man in uh, mm-hmm. Prohibition at that point in time that he was operating. So And had the best whiskey all around. And had the best whiskey, yes. Mm-hmm. Never cut. I mean, what other... I guarantee there wasn't one other rum runner and bootlegger out there that never cut their alcohol never fucked with it, never did anything, never hiked the prices, never screwed over somebody, never partnered with the mob or the, the the corrupt police or anything like that. This guy was legit as legit could get in the, in the rum running business. Mm-mm-mm. And uh, he, he earned the reputation for it. So I didn't know about this guy before we started this episode. And I was like, who the hell is Bill McCoy? There's no way this guy's story can be... Um, interesting and then i read about it and i was like this is an actually interesting where you always hear about the prohibition stuff out running uh cars and right you know started nascar and all that stuff on the ground you never hear about the 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 water side of it people mm-hmm. transporting on ships and, and shit, that was a big which was a big yeah, fucking part of it where big, they got big, all of it obviously you can't you had mm-hmm. stills and stuff people but a lot of imports this dude was hauling 1500 cases of whiskey mm-hmm. crazy stuff how many did a case have in it? At least 12. 12 mm. in a case. That's 1,500 right. times 12. What's that? What? 1,500 times 12. 1,500 times 12. What? 16,000? 16, 16,000 bottles of whiskey? 15 times 10 would be... 1,500 times 10 would be 15,000, right? Mm-hmm. Then you can do another fucking... Uh, yeah, about 16,500, 17,000 uh, bottles of whiskey he was hauling every, 17 every time. 17 bottles of whiskey on a wall. So there you go. Bill McCoy. The real McCoy, the most honest and uh, had the best stuff out there, took over a fishing village. Isn't that crazy? You can go to a small town, and then because he was doing so good, everybody else went there. It was like, 
Yeah, we just transformed this down to a fishing town to a bootlegging town. Not even, I guess it wouldn't be bootlegging because it wasn't legal in France. Mm-mm. And it was a French colony, so. Mm-hmm. It was fine. Right. It was fine. It was fine. Good stuff. This is going to do it for our fifth episode of Prohibition. We'll be back next week for. Uh, Mickey and Mallory. The, uh, Mickey and Mallory. What is that movie called? Natural Born Killers. Natural Born Killers. There we go. Nice. Uh, we actually, <laughs> we actually might be doing Bonnie and Clyde. No, not next week. Not next week. No, we're, we got like literally only like three more people of the prohibition because it's a prohibition that was actual big rum runners and this stuff like that. There's only seven stories that are worth even telling because all of them, they might, there's, there's countless people that you can look up that were rum runners, but. Number one, they don't have a backstory. Nobody knows the story. So uh, we'd literally come on here and be like, well, this story is about John Smith. Oh, you can do it. He st- ran rum from 1918 we- to 1931, and then he got incarcerated. <laughs> and then, all right, guys, it's going to end the episode. Uh, we can do <laughs> it. Literally all we would do. We can do a show that names at least 10 people. I don't know about that. Uh, but uh, Bonnie and Claude is definitely prohibition. Well, they didn't run. They didn't run. Run. So? They didn't run. They didn't run. Run. So? They are in the era of prohibition, right. so they couldn't con- be considered prohibition era. Of course, they are. Nineteen thirty-one. I mean, we got. If we're gonna go, well, obviously. I mean, come we on. already know we. Yeah, but they're more late. No, middle thirties. No, thirty-one to thirty-three, thirty-four. I no. think they died in thirty-four. And that's when fucking. Well, they were, yes, they we, were public enemy no, number we're one. We're getting there. We have Bonnie and Clyde. Babyface, Nelson, um, prohibition. Um, all those guys. They're That's not prohibition. prohibition. None of them were involved in rum. Those are bank robbers. Don't matter. Still prohibition stuff. era. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Bonnie and Clyde were. Bonnie and Clyde were late thirties. Public Enemy number one. Late thirties. Public Enemy number one. Died in nineteen thirty four. So they that? were during the prohibition, 1931, huh? 1931, 1934, man. Prohibition, motherfuckers. Yeah, but they didn't have no part in prohibition. That's my. That's my point. Right. We'll get the Great Depression, actually. Well, more of a Great Depression, but they did operate. Prohibition ended in '33, so. Um, They're operating prohibition, so. What I'm saying, we're obviously gonna, we're obviously gonna get the counts. actual bootleggers. Yeah, Warren Beatty. We're obviously gonna get the actual bootleggers and people that were selling liquor and doing all that shit during Prohibition out of the way, and then we'll move to Bonnie and Clyde, John Derringer. Um, Babyface Nelson, Machine Gun Kelly, all those guys that are uh, at the same time frame as this. They just took a little other way of making money by robbing banks and uh, killing cops. And, and murdering people. And murdering people. So, as stated already, we got a lot to get to. We got a couple more prohibition, strictly prohibition, focused on alcohol transport and illegal alcohol uh, stuff. And then we'll move right on to Bonnie uh, and Clyde and the likes of those guys. So, yeah, Outlaws and Gunslingers, the only place you're going to find the history. History. Pretty much the timeline history of... Everything. Not only the most famous, but also the little-known people. That's what we do. We wanna, we're want to. we learning, like we said all the time, we're learning with you guys. I don't care. A lot of these people, we're learning with you guys, so uh, don't take us as experts. We're not experts. We're just mm-hmm. here uh, putting together the information that anybody w- I, we think anybody would like to hear about these guys. So, yeah, we'll be back next week, though. With the famous, ultra famous Elliot Ness. Uh oh. You guys might know Elliot Ness from uh, our Al Capone episode where he was the leader of the Untouchables, quote unquote, the most un, what is it, uncorruptible force 
in police history up at that point who uh, had the task of taking down Al Capone, which they did if you heard our Al Capone episode. But people only know about Elliot Ness of that little little sliver of his life right. in Chicago. This guy actually ended up having a pretty messed up last life, last few years of his life, as as most <laughs> as most of these guys that we cover do. So you already know probably what's going to happen there. But uh, Elliot Ness is next week, and I think we got a couple more lawmen that I think we're going to fit into one episode because, like I said, the stories are not. There's not a lot of uh, information on the rest of these Mm-mm. rest of these uh, figures in prohibition. So maybe we'll do two lawmen. Once we start getting to like, next, once we start getting like the fifties, sixties, seventies, we're gonna get some, some stories. Yeah, we'll get some stories, but uh, that even applies to the mob, though. Right. A lot of these guys with the mob, we're not gonna know. Right. It's true. So we're only gonna know like the big figures of the mob. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we'll get there when we get there. You can go check us out on our other podcast, The Mouthy Michiganders. Everywhere you get your podcast, right now we're in the middle of nothing. <laughs> <laughs> We're literally in the middle of nothing, but we got <laughs> we're, like, we're in the middle of something. We got though. like 280 episodes backlog. So you guys can go check us out over there. And if you're, sorry, if you're into what, what can we categorize Lee and Corey as if you're into, um, skit improv comedy right. type, like, uh, it's a private investor, private investigator cases, crazy private investigator cases. Like, like anything. Like a knocked over trash cans. This All gay right. guy tries to uh, right. lure Lee and Corey over there because his trash can supposedly are getting knocked over, but he just, just wants to right. see him. Like crazy stuff like that happens. There's a barking couple, dog. Yeah, there's a couple that wakes up every morning and their furniture's moved around. Right. We don't know why, but we find out. Well, we don't. Lee and Corey find out. Another one, a neighbor's complaint about a barking dog. They go over there. They figure out that the barking dog is actually a mentally ill uh, wife of the next door neighbor. There's all signs of crazy shit like that. Oh, the pig Comedy. farmer. The pig farmer. The pig Ooh, farmer. You guys, yeah, like you guys, that. guys, go check that out. Lee and Corey on the case wherever you get your podcast again. Uh, and we'll be back next week for Elliot Ness. Mm, he is, he is uh, uh, inspiration for the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody's ever seen him. Nope. Except for in one foggy picture, right. one foggy day in <laughs> Ireland, right? Is it Scot- Ireland? Scottish? I, I think it's I think Ireland. Scottish. I think it's Scotland. I think it's Scotland. Yeah, right. Loch Ness is Scotland. Scotland. Yeah, the yeah. monster. We'll be back next week for Elliot Ness with Mountain Michiganders with Bang Dang. Bang.